all of us are on a journey of becoming. A never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fairn and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. Uh, Greg is still doing his sabbatical, not sabbatical thing, whatever he is doing. Uh, I don't know. I, it sounds like a sabbatical, but whenever I talk to Greg, he's like, don't call it that. So, Greg, whatever you want to call it, since you're not here, I'm going to call it a sabbatical. And you can't do anything about it. So, fight me. Uh, but, <laughs> once again, I'm not alone. Uh, I do have a friend with me today I'm excited to hang out with. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with him, especially if you hang out in the world of Twitter or are involved in literally any of the circles that this podcast is involved in. So with me today is Mason Menega. Mason, what's going on, dude? What's going on? You nailed that pronunciation. It's like you've listened to a podcast episode or a YouTube episode here or there. I So I was stressed about it all day, and I really wanted to do it well. So I'm glad it worked out. I'm not going to do it again, because if I got it right the first time, nailed yeah, you know, it. I'll, I'll just Mason. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, good deal. Well, Mason, thanks so much for hanging out, man. It was cool to uh, try to think. I guess I, I met, finally met you in person at Theology Beer Camp. Yeah. Um, and now we're uh, here hanging out on the, the interwebs. So it's it's fun to have you on. And uh, thanks for hanging out today. Yeah. It, uh, beer Camp was was good times. I've been I was hanging out with Trip last week and was bugging him about uh what the next theology beer camp should consist of. And so hopefully we can make it happen sometime soon again. Yeah. I was uh, very jealous of the hanging out. I really wanted to go to the, the conference, but I was in North Carolina, um, oddly enough in Raleigh to go see the caps lose to the hurricanes in the stadium series game. <laughs> well, <laughs> so sounds like you really made a regretful decision. I, yeah, apparently, <laughs> but such is life. Uh, there's always, I guess, the have to wait another 50 years. So hopefully I'm still around for the next 50 year celebration. But 
Anyway, dude, you uh, there was like so many things that we could talk about. Um, I wanted to ask you about your dissertation, uh, which I heard about actually. I think almost offhandedly, Trip mentioned it or something. Um, oh. and then you sent it to me, and I was like, "Yo, this is right up my alley. I love this." But before we got there, you tweeted something recently that I didn't quite understand, and so I wanted to ask your opinion on it. Is that oh, cool? I probably didn't either. Are we allowed so. to do Great. Twitter? Okay. So you posted, it was like a, like an artwork photo and so you like commented like Christian men lick here or something like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. understand what was happening. And so yeah. I was wondering if you could fill me in. Well, I, I wish this wasn't a podcast, uh, but actually a video podcast. So your listeners could take a look. Uh, but yeah, there was this photo of what appeared to be space. Uh, like not like blank space or dark space, but like a, like, I don't know, it was a sun or something like that. And then like a moon, I don't know what it was, but, uh, my friend Paul, uh, posted, posted it. And to me, it looked very, very similar to a thing called a vagina, or actually, it oh. was the outside of said vagina, and so it was looked like a vulva. And there are a lot of Christian men out there who still don't know that there is such a thing as a clitoris. And a uh. clitoris is a very nice feeling thing, both if you are licking it, uh, the person licking it, or it feels very nice to be licked if you have one. And so I wanted to point out uh, for all the people out there who don't know where the clitoris is uh, to now know where it is and and then where to actually, uh, you know, lick if you need to. So uh, I thought it was just a helpful guide for people who are completely unaware. And it seems like most of those people are Christian men. So I just wanted to, you know, help out the fellow Christian man and, uh, you know, give him a little life advice. Well, Mason, you have a you have a servant's heart. For sure. I, I, I try my best. I try to my best. You know, I, 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 uh, you know, it, it's my cross to bear. <laughs> and it's, it's perfect too. Cause that actually plays nicely into your dissertation because your dissertation was about uh, embodiment and the importance of that. Um, and I mean, I actually, I thought it was creatively titled everybody, everybody, two separate words is spiritual how embodiment should shape our theology, ethics, and praxis. And so the clitoris bit and uh, such is an example of really healthy embodiment and sex positivity. So I thought it was a nice tie-in. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. You don't mention the clitoris so much in the dissertation, yeah, but like, I thought yeah, did I, maybe a missed opportunity. But Yeah, did not write the word clitoris in the, you know, there's like, I think there's like 20,000 words in it. And yeah, none of those words is clitoris. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it's okay. Next time when you, your doctoral thesis, when, uh, yeah. when you get around to that, just That's right. add it you know, and it'll be good. Um, right. It's really my only critique, but outside of that is I liked it. So, and I mean, not that my opinion matters. I have not written a master's thesis, so not worth listening to, but anyway, uh, <laughs> So within your thesis, uh, you do so you, you make a claim uh, that essentially our bodies are religious, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to ask you, how is it that you see our bodies embodying religion? It's a weird way of phrasing the yeah. question, but yeah. So 
let, let me, before I dive into that question, let me kind of give you some like background of why I wanted to do this in particular, th this topic for my thesis is I have a lot of annoyance as to put it lightly, annoyance around the conversation around embodiment. Sometimes when we talk about the bodies, usually, I shouldn't say sometimes, usually when we talk about embodiment in our bodies, we're always talking about doing something. Like when you're like, oh, you need to become more embodied. Usually when somebody says that to you, you're like, well, does, do I need to do yoga? Or like, there's some sort of like physical thing that they're asking you to actually do. And for some reason that gets labeled as embodied. And I really find that annoying. And and specifically within religion, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Let's let's back up here. I'm fine with doing these, doing these things. That's great, wonderful. But like, what's actually happening in our bodies when we have religious experiences? I'm more interested in that. Like, let's actually engage the physiology of the body and and uh, figure that out. And then we can also do these really great things that we say are embodied things. That's great. But let's actually figure out what's going on in our bodies when we have religious experiences. So that was the kind of the reason why I wanted to explore the topic, because I think embodiment really is a, a very powerful thing or can be a really powerful thing. But if it just means do things, I find that a little less uh, a little less powerful. So that's why I'm like, let's actually engage the physiology of the body. So that's why I did uh, the first part of the paper. I really engaged the sciences, specifically around science and uh, the, the science of the body and what's happening in our body in religious engagement. And so a lot of that, a lot of that science is mostly due or, or most of that science explores what's going on in our brains, in our body. But I think of our brain as one part of the body. There's some other things that I explore in in the thesis around what's happening, um, kind of like how how we reflect about our bodies and our religious experiences as well. But uh, yeah, it, it was really exciting to actually explore the physiology of the body, specifically the physiology of the body during religious experience. So that's the first part of the paper. Then basically the second half of the paper, what I do is make the theological conclusions. So if this is true about what's happening in our body during religious experience, how should we think about God? How should we think about sin and evil? How should we think about salvation? How should we think about eschatology or the end times? Uh, and then the last part is like, what do we do with this? Like, how should we think about our bodies? How should we treat our bodies and others' bodies? And uh, what are some practices that might help us engage in this? So uh, yeah, that's kind of what I did with the whole thesis. That's a little bit of a breakdown of it. But uh, yeah, the, the start of it really came down to me wanting to understand what's going on in the physiology of the body during religious experience and what kind of conclusions can we make from that? Yeah, thanks, dude. I and I realized too. I was a, a very poor host, and I didn't even give you like the opportunity to introduce yourself or your work. So you you did oh. the introduce your work bit, which is helpful. Um, I I have a question about what you just said, but also, can you just like introduce yourself briefly? Because I fucked that up hardcore. Yeah. Uh, uh my my name is Mason Lee Menega. I was born on July 29th, nineteen ninety four, in Watertown, South Dakota. Uh, and then I turned one years old. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go through my whole life story. Uh, yeah, I, I was a person who grew up in conservative evangelicalism, went to a small Christian college that happened to actually be very conservative, but also the religion department was really liberal and 
I started reading people like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and all the other scary people that we shouldn't read and changed my faith completely. I rethought my faith. Maybe somebody should make a podcast about that. Well, uh, and then I started uh, as a youth pastor in Minneapolis and start, did my MDiv. So I became a uh, did, did the master's degree in ministry type thing. And uh, yeah, now I work for a seminary and I also got this other master's, which is the reason why I did this thesis. And I also host a podcast called A People's Theology, which is uh, basically the JV version of Rethinking Your Faith podcast. And I also have another podcast called The Black Sheep Podcast, where I talk with musicians and artists uh, about uh, their work. And a lot of those people come from like the alternative Christian music scene. So I've like interviewed bands like Reliant K and uh, un or who else have I done that? It was pretty like Thrice is another band that I've interviewed. I'm trying to think of some of the other bigger ones. But anyway, uh, and then I also do YouTube and I just uploaded my newest YouTube video a couple days ago about if Jesus was a socialist. Uh, so anyway, lots of things that I do. Basically, I just put a lot of things out on the interwebs for people to enjoy and hopefully learn from. Well, so I will give you 100% insider info here. I always have been jealous of people who are able to do music interviews because like secretly I've always kind of wanted to be able to do that. But like rethinking faith isn't really a platform for that. So right. the closest I've gotten is like Dan, you know, we're, you know, mutual friend Dan Koch hangs out. Um, and then like Matt Carter and Toby Morell have been mm -hmm. on. Uh, both more than once, but that's like the big, that's like the best I got with music. I just don't have the, I also don't know it as well. Like I love music, but I, I'm, I don't have like the investment that someone like yourself mm. has had or like Dan, um, Dan, you know, can be like, Oh, do you know this band? And be like, yeah, I like, you know, these albums, whatever. And then he'll like say this stuff and I'll be like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but cool. I'm glad. Thanks for the information. So I've always been kind of jealous of that, but yeah, as much as I like professionally am known for theology and clearly I've put a lot of hours into that, I probably have put way more hours into listening to music and studying that. And so someone like Dan is fun to talk to about music because he also, even though he's a musician, he also like thinks about music similarly to me. Like he likes thinking through it historically, think, thinking through it like sociologically and terms of like an album's import importance that kind of thing so dan is fun to argue with because we actually think about music i think similarly so i love arguing with dan about music it's great and uh, i can do that way more than i could argue about theology well perhaps what we'll have to do a uh i do this like patron exclusive episode uh episodes called happy hour happy hours with an s in parentheses at the end uh with trip because you know anytime you talk to trip on a podcast it's going to be longer than an hour um, and it would be fun. We could, you know, have Dan on yourself. It involves alcohol and we have a fun conversation. I'm, I'm totally um, down. Anytime I get to hang out with Dan and argue about music, I will gladly. And we argue, I mean, we're not like kind to each other. <laughs> I like also it. it's, it's out. It's completely out of just what we do in our friendship. Yeah. Though well, that's the best thing. Um, all right. So back to your thesis, um, the embodiment thing, because this was something for me personally, part of why I liked your thesis so much was because for me personally, um, in embodiment has been something that kind of shifted my faith in some very dramatic ways. Um, I 
kind of has always been a person that lives in my head. Mm-hmm. And I uh, also was taught growing up that like, you know, the body is bad and not great. And like, you're just like a horny 16 year old and you should probably chill that out until you get a smoking hot wife, then go to town kind of thing. Um, and I remember uh, like, so I don't, I don't know how much you know about my, my own personal story, but I used to be a pastor. And when I was doing that um, and was seeking to uh, step away from pastoral ministry, just for like a, mostly mental health reasons, I was seeing a spiritual director and the spiritual director asked me a question one day, like, well, where do you experience this in your body? And I was like, I have no idea what the fuck you're asking me right now. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. I don't quite understand this question. And so she uh, said, who I'm forever grateful for, she really kind of introduced me to some of these ideas. Um, and then I, you know, found some really cool, like spiritual embodiment teachers. I read like, you know, the body keeps the score, stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And so engaging like the physiological aspect of things and like trying to figure out what it is that's happening um, has just been something that for me personally has been very helpful. And I think if I didn't have um, that kind of experience or I wasn't introduced into thinking about faith or experiencing, you know, faith in the body in this way, um, I don't know if I'd still be hanging out and doing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's just like a little personal anecdote as to why um, I was kind of compelled and drawn to uh, your thesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I have a similar story in the fact that, yeah, like I, I also very much exist in my mind space and I like thinking through things intellectually. And when my faith completely changed, a lot of that had to do with the fact that I found some intellectual inconsistencies with evangelical theology that I had grown up with. You know, I found inconsistencies with hell and how we think about homosexuality, those sorts of things. But all of it started because I also had a similar experience in the fact that purity culture just wasn't what my body was wanting to do. Uh, like I was also, you know, a, a teenage boy with hormones running through my body. And I realized like, this isn't wrong for my body to feel like this. And for me to feel all this guilt and shame around that, uh, I just was like, is it, this can't be the only way to exist in the world. And so I started having a lot of these doubts about my faith because of that. And then everything else kind of unraveled intellectually for me. Um, But it all started because my body was experiencing something in the world that just wasn't congruent with, uh, with what I was told. Yeah, that, man, I, I resonate that so much. The, the, the experience bit, which again was something that uh, I was told, like, can't trust your experience, blah, 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 whatever. Um, but I was kind of felt like I was in these spaces where my experience and what I was being told were kind of like at odds with one another deeply. And I didn't know what to do with that. Um, and so one aspect, one thing that you, you mentioned, um, in like the middle section of your, your paper is this idea that, um, mind body dualism is Mm -hmm. an illusion. It's, it's something that's not true. You know, so, you know, Cartesian dualism is some people call it whatever, um, but just so for people who maybe are not super familiar with, okay, so mind body dualism, what is this? Um, can you explain perhaps what that mind body dualism is and why you find it not to be helpful? Mm, yeah. So the mind body dualism or what 
would we, we would describe it as Cartesian dualism is this idea that the mind and body are completely separate. They might, you know, interact with one another, but they're completely separate. Uh, they do different things. And one of the things that I ended up realizing in my studies is that that just doesn't exist. <laughs> like the mind and the body, the, the brain rather, and the body are one. I, I would argue that the brain is part of the body. And, and that was one of the arguments I make in the paper. And it might have a certain type of function that might be different than, let's say, your heart. But nonetheless, it is a part of your body. And so when you experience something in your brain or your brain experiences something, then that is a part of your body. And so that is an embodied experience. So I think it's a really, really harmful way to think about our bodies. But what we see with that mind-body dualism is it, it, it has permeated throughout all of our culture where we, we make the body inferior and we make our brain or our mind superior. And so we we really devalue our bodies. And so we treat our bodies really poorly and obviously the bodies of others. Um, and so we we take then the mind as being the the holy grail. It is the superior thing in our society. And so if you want to be successful, if you want to, uh, you know, so on and so forth, those are all qualities that we would attribute to the mind and then all the things of the body are things that are devalued. And so, yeah, it's just really interesting how that permeates throughout all of our culture, this mind-body dualism. And so I think it's really, really helpful then to start to poke the holes uh, in that uh, dualism and then you know, hopefully something more beautiful emerges. And so uh, that's why I try to do a little bit in that section of the paper. Hmm. Yeah. And um like the mind body dualism bit um and like having that point out to me was again like another major kind of like uh turning point for me um in my own faith and i i realized too that a lot of what i was taught growing up within like a more evangelical world um theologically assumed this kind of mind body dualism and almost to the point where like i don't know I think it's funny that there's a lot of uh, like ex-evangelicals that find Gnosticism and think it's like this new special shiny thing. And perhaps this is like, I'm a dick for saying this, but like, I feel like evangelicals are kind of Gnostics already um, mm. because of this mind body split where like the body is this evil, bad thing. And the only thing that really matters is the mind consciousness or perhaps they call it soul whatever um and like that's the kind of thing that's eternal it's going to go float off into you know some ethereal reality somewhere when we die and that's really all that matters um which then leads to not only like you were saying this uh like devaluing physical bodies which then we can you know not only treat ourselves poorly but like leads to things like racism and sexism and killing other people, these kind of things, um, because like, well, your body sucks anyway, and it's not really the thing right. that matters. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I don't know, that that tension's always been um, interesting, I guess, for me. And then the kind of trying to bring the two together, I also noticed was something that 
uh, is a bit more common within like the Jewish scriptures, like Old Testament mm. is very embodied. Like I think the Jewish people um, speak this like very embodied language, the idea of like something being separate or split or different uh doesn't come until much later you know like second temple period judaism kind of stuff starts to evolve so um yeah i don't know i the mind body dualism thing has always been interesting for me um and i think our our as you pointed out like our our culture rides heavily on it um a lot of the like christian experiences that we you know grew up in and, and have been taught ride on that and it's just seems to me to be like Demach really just not true <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's an important part of your paper. Well, it's interesting you brought up the Gnostics just a bit ago. I actually wrote a paper in seminary about the prologue in John 1. And obviously the Johannine scholar is certainly a Gnostic scholar or or a, or a Gnostic thinker rather. And I, I don't want to say that the Johannine scholar or the Johannine author is not a Gnostic. I think he certainly was. But there are a lot of moments, especially in that prologue, where you're like, wait, there isn't this like devaluing of the body and this valuing of the mind or the, in obviously in the case of the Johannine scholar, the logos. Like in, in John 1, you see God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus. And so to know, so that author is making the argument. So if you want to know God, you will have to know this person who has a body. And I find that really, really interesting, uh, despite the fact that also this thinker is very much a Gnostic. So uh, I think like the the mind-body dualism is certainly there. I don't want to say it's not there in Gnostic thinking, but I also think it's a little bit more complex, especially at least with the Johannine thinker and author of uh, especially the Gospel of John. Yeah, that that's a, actually that's a really good point because I think too the and you probably know. Uh, I mean, I'm not trained in like Greek or <laughs> languages like this, but the within uh, John when he says like the word becomes flesh, like that word is like I think sarx is the Greek word, right? Mm-hmm. I've I've heard people like Trip talk about this, and that's not just necessarily like uh, like saying that just specifically the word became Jesus, but rather like. Sarx is a more generic word for like all matter yeah. kind of. So it's like a more mm-hmm. deeply embodied word than just like this person thing, which I think goes to your point that it's, yeah. So that uh, yeah, it's a point well taken. Yeah. And in process thought, uh, you know, you often hear process Christian process theologians talk about the incarnation, not just happening in the person of Jesus, but in all of the universe all of physical reality. And so I, I think that that Sark's word starts to get to that of that it's all of matter and the logos becoming, uh, you know, God becoming flesh is not just flesh in a human body, but in all bodies, um, even some of the bodies that we might not even know of that might exist elsewhere in the universe. Are you implying that there might be intelligent life like aliens somewhere uh, hey, else you know what why else would we shoot four of them down <laughs> in the last like month it's a good point it's yeah that's <laughs> it <so, laughs> oh man the alien thing is always fun i i remember like uh ah oh, geez when was it it was a while ago um 
but Dan had put out an episode about like you have permission to it was still when all of his episodes were called like you have permission to do X, Y, and Z. And one of them was like you have permission to like accept extraterrestrial life or something like that. And I remember like that was the first time I had ever like I was still a pastor in like a super evangelical church at the time. And I was like, whoa, what? Like this is crazy. Uh yeah. The Sarks bit, I think. You know, in a more serious note, gets to all of that, which I think is really cool. I think that's one part of the equation within Christianity that I didn't, you know, wasn't given growing up, but like later kind of came to this uh, understanding. And you know, because I'm like a panentheist, and so the the Sarks bit plays nicely with that, um, and so does uh, something else you mentioned in your paper. Uh, which you do these two uh, bits or, or chapters with uh, emergence and panpsychism. Um, and so I guess in your paper, you start with emergence. So how, so how does emergence fit into, well, I guess first, what is emergence? And then how does that fit into the kind of this conversation um, that we're having? Yeah. So, um, emergence theory is the idea that a small, like a smaller building block, when when a number of those smaller building blocks come together, they can create something entirely new. Okay, so for example, when a bunch of your cells to get the, get together, eventually those cells turn into an organ, <laughs> and then a bunch of those organs get together, and it turns into a human body, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just this idea that like a bunch of building blocks can create something new altogether, something that wasn't necessarily present. So like what cells are able to do is one thing, but then they get together and then it creates new properties when an organ gets together, when it, when an organ is created. Like an organ has different functions and it it's able to do something entirely different than if it's just a, cl a clump of cells, Okay. So that's kind of the argument around emergence. And the reason why I, uh, the main reason why I pull uh, emergence into the conversation around embodiment is that the idea around emergence is, you know, you start out with something very, very simple, like essentially the singularity uh, we know in the Bing ba Big Bang. And then all of a sudden you get, uh, all these other little elements and then those elements come together and eventually we get to uh, elements uh, of like carbon and then you get uh, all this carbon coming together and then you get uh, the building blocks for life and then you get these cells. So now you've got living things and all these living things to get together and then you get organs and so on and so forth, right? So we're constantly building up and I would argue emergence even gets into things like hu human systems like culture, politics, religion. And so the reason why I bring uh, the emergence conversation is that I think that the human body is one piece in that emergence story. And eventually it leads to religion. So I think religion wouldn't have happened had human bodies not existed. Okay, because human bodies are one thing that's needed in that story of emergence to get to something as complex as religion. So that's the reason why I bring the emergence theory piece into that conversation around embodiment is I think it's a, it, our bodies are a really critical component to something as complex as religion. Um, 
Yeah, I, I like I would I would argue that if you have something that does not have a physical body, it does not have the potential to become religious. I think that I think there's a really good argument for that. Uh, I'd be really interested to hear like how other like maybe panpsychists would think through that. But that's that would be my argument is that, you know, I, as great as uh, chat GBT is because it doesn't have a body, an organic body. I don't know if it ever could develop something like religion. I don't know. I don't think it could. So, uh, yeah, that's why the the emergence chapter was really important. What's interesting, though, is I'm sure you're wanting to go to panpsychism next, is that there's a big debate between the panpsychists and the emergence, uh, the emergentist people. Uh, and panpsychism is the idea that um, mind or, uh, or experience exists throughout everything. So the electrons that make up your body, the electrons that are all floating around in the universe, those things to some degree have experience or a uh, or mental property is what a panpsychist would argue. And the interesting thing is the emergentists and the panpsychists all disagree on like, what's that foundational building block? Is it the mind or is it emergence? And they always really disagree with each other. And I wasn't interested in this in this thesis to try to reconcile both or try to say that I agree with one more than the other. Uh, I just find both of them very, very interesting theories. And I think they both really play well into thinking about embodiment. Yeah, no, that I I loved that you <laughs> they put the two together. It was fun because the I mean, I think like, I don't know. I so I tend to find myself more within like some kind of panpsychism, uh, like personal idealism, a la, like Keith Ward kind of stuff. But the emergence idea is really interesting. And I mean, even now, just in real time, trying to think like, I, I don't know. I understand why they're they're kind of separate and pitted against one another but i think it'd be f fun to get some kind of like emergent pants like i don't know anyway the i think what's the emergence thing is interesting because it when you have it's almost like the idea and i think i'm stealing this from like rob bell in one of his talks he gives this example of like if you were to just put all the ingredients to make a cake on your kitchen counter and then went to bed and the next day you came out and then there was a cake that'd be like really weird right uh because like these lesser and smaller building blocks came together and then like made this like they became something greater than just the sum of their whatever the language is. You know the language better than I do. But um, so that the emergence bit is is deeply interesting to me. Um, and I know a lot of like more, uh, I don't know, like scientific, like naturalist type people um, that talk about consciousness essentially as something that is an emergent property, right? Like, is that kind mm -hmm. of how it, it works is eventually consciousness becomes a thing that right. emerges out of these building blocks kind of coming together. Right. Um, Which is, that, that's a really good point is that, that, you know, just because you're emergentist doesn't necessarily mean that you don't believe that there's mind in things that maybe don't necessarily or aren't necessarily thought of as has been mind, but, uh, it is to say that mind doesn't exist all the way down. That's what the emergentists would argue, right? And so here, 
like I, I again i didn't really want to get into the into the paper but i actually do think i'm more of an emergentist than i am a panpsychist I, I like i find the emergentist argument more compelling and but with that said it does play well the the idea of emergence and panpsychism plays well into uh, my conversation around embodiment specifically within panpsychism the idea that experience or mental properties exists all the way down uh i don't necessarily think that that argument is needed to think about embodiment but again for example i really wanted to engage the physiology of the body in the first part of the paper the sciences and figure out what's actually happening in our cells what's happening in our neurons when we have religious experiences well i think you can only make that argument that something is happening within our cells that our cells and our neurons are experiencing something during religious experience um you can only make that argument that they are experiencing something if you think that they're mental or or if you think that they can experience right and so uh that's where i i bring in that panpsychism argument because i think it is really critical even though i'm not necessarily making that argument that panpsychism has to go all the way down um i think at, at the very least at least for my paper you need panpsychism to be true for uh the single-celled organism or the you know some sort of cell or neuron or whatever yeah yeah. <laughs> no, I, I like it. it. It too, it brings to mind something like, you know, I think it's, it's almost being the question too, because you, you know, you're talking about what's happening in the body during spiritual experiences, religious experience. Well, like it, Mason, I don't know if you know this, but like Christians aren't the only people that have these kind of religious or spiritual experiences. Uh, so like, I don't know. What do we do with that? Cause uh, it's like within like the research and all, you know, you have uh, people from a wide variety of religious background experiences, giving examples of mystical experience or whatever, or, you know, they hook people's brains up to like little electrode reader thingies, and then they pray and have these mystical experiences and they can map them onto the brain. Um, so like, I think there's something interesting uh, in that regard too. Um, that a lot of times when people with like within a Christian persuasion, I guess more specifically, more conservative Christians uh, don't want to point out the fact that like, OK, it's true of us. And like then they'll be like, yeah, but the Buddhists, they're just kind of tricking themselves like it's just mm -hmm. fake for them. Right. So um, I don't know. I think it's cool to engage that idea within almost not just as a um, particularly just a religious experience, but also almost as like a a human experience like is this part of what it means to be human uh which i think plays nicely with your idea of like if we weren't embodied we wouldn't have these religious experiences um mm -hmm. in the first place kind of thing i mean let, uh, let's go even a little farther is it possible that some complex organisms let's say a tree or even an elephant I mean, some of those species have exhibited proto-religious engagement or proto-religious practices. Um, you know, they they have rituals. Uh, I, I, if you don't know, I mean, who knows? Maybe they have some sort of relationship with the divine. Who Who is to say that they're not having some form of religious experience? So it's not even just this universal human experience of religious experience, but also... What if it's just like a universal living experience? So other living things also maybe have some form, maybe not necessarily as complex as humans, 
but some sort of form of religious experience. I don't get into that so much in this paper, but I think that emergence um, bit and the the panpsychism bit that I explore in the paper at least leads us into a conversation around that of what if it's not just humans that have religious experience, but what if it, there's other living things that do, um, or at the very least, the very least, they have the potential to evolve at some point where they can have religious experience as well. Yeah, I, I, so I really like, you know, like the Franciscans, uh, like Saint, you know, I have homeboy right here, Saint Francis within arm's reach. <laughs> uh, so animals and nature and creation is something I care deeply about. Um, and I kind of always liked the Franciscans for their willingness to talk about how nature and, and animals and stuff, um, either exemplify, the divine or are participating with or or embodiments of mm -hmm. um and so yeah i i like i like that you push that more forward than just outside of you know human experience but also oh maybe these animals too um because mm -hmm. i don't know i think like if i could talk to my dog uh all right so we have three dogs and a cat i think the like cats are kind mm -hmm. of assholes so maybe they don't do the thing but they're, like they're dogs... farther they're farther away from religious experience <laughs> farther than... away, right <laughs> but i think the dogs are, are are somewhere a little bit more experiential than than perhaps banksy the cat <laughs> well i actually i just uh watched this youtube video recently about the kind of the neuroscience uh, around dogs uh and, and what's happening in their brains during different things and it's interesting like one of the basic building blocks to get to religion, this isn't religion, but it is to get to religion, is sociality. And dogs exhibit that very, very well. And they're extremely social creatures to the point when you leave home, they actually physically have anxiety in the same way that humans might have anxiety during social situations. They have anxiety because they're not able to be social with their owners anymore. And uh, that, that just is a building block. Again, I think this emergence thing it's a building block to get to something like religion. Um, and who knows, you know, you, we, these dogs a few million years from now, who's to say that they don't get to the, those building blocks, uh, the, at least the very, very basic building blocks of religion uh, in the same way that some of those very early human species um, experienced and exhibited those very, very early basic building blocks of religion. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And so I guess, um, do you then see like religion, um, you know, if, if there's this emergentist property and, and, you know, things are, are growing in greater capacity um, for something like religion, do you see religion as almost like, uh, like in some kind of ultimate, um, I don't know the right word for it. I'm not a philosopher, but like religion is some kind of like ultimate goal or ultimate good, something that is beautiful uh, like, do you see religion as inherently positive or what's kind of your your thoughts around that? Yeah, so that's a good question. And this is where my process uh, thinking will come in. So process theology would argue that, you know, the universe, at least creativity, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate that is creativity leads us towards complexity. That complexity, because it's complex, will lead us towards greater good and greater experience. Uh, that is positive, but also it can lead us to greater uh, negative experience in the world, right? 
So culture is can create really beautiful experiences in the world, but culture also starts to lead us towards dividing um, with one another to create uh, categories like race. And then all of a sudden you start to get, you know, a lot of issues coming along with that. Right. And that's just one example of complexity allowing for greater potential for positive experience, but also negative experience. And I think religion is one of those complex things that does that. It allows us to have really beautiful, wonderful, positive experiences, but also religion creates the potential for really negative experience as well. I don't necessarily see as like real, like if, if a species gets to religion, it's now like game over or you won. Congratulations. You got the princess. I don't think that's the case. Right. I think there's going to be probably some sort of another emergent emergence that happens even beyond religion. Uh, and maybe that already exists. I don't know. I, I do think religion is one of the more complex things in existence, but who knows, maybe something new emerges beyond religion, the next thing after religion. And uh, that will be interesting to see what happens. But um, yeah, I don't see religion necessarily as like an ultimate goal. It's not, uh, you know, you get to the game and uh, you win. But I also don't see it as um, something that, yeah, is unattainable for other things to to have. Like, I think that it is an emergent property and it also is very complex. And so it allows for a lot of potential for good and a lot of potential for bad. I dig it. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Trying to process everything. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I, that's so cool. Cause I, I like, I love I mean, so process thought is something that is uh, relatively new to me. I I mean, I've been engaging like open and relational theology for a couple of years now. And like, you know, open, not all, as you know, like all process people are, are basically open relational, but not all open relational people are process. Um, and so like, because of, you know, people like trip, keep pushing me or luring me, uh, into greater and new possibilities um process thought is something that um has i don't know like i think if if it wasn't for encountering process thought um perhaps i wouldn't be taking uh my like christian faith as seriously because it's given me a way that i feel like i can express christianity in the world in a way that's meaningful that doesn't have to, you know, bury my head in the sand when it comes to things like science or experience or whatever. Um, and so I'm still trying to like learn how to think prop, like as a process person. Um, but I think what you said about religion as, you know, specifically the idea that maybe there's something that could be coming after religion, that's really deeply appealing to me because if things are still in constant process and, uh, if the divine is alluring us towards constantly things that are novel and new and creative, um, then it's like, of course, like, what is that next thing? And that's, I don't know, that's exciting to me. That gives me some kind of almost like eschatological hope <laughs> mm -hmm. for something in the, in the future, um, as things keep, uh, unfolding. And also it, to it, it kind of calls off this, um, I think a lot of the times uh, the kind of Christian faith I was uh, raised in is deeply like anthropocentric and like very human focused. And so this 
um, idea that there that you know things could be called beyond is like okay, well humans don't just have it all figured out. Like people aren't just like the bee's knees like they think they are. <laughs> and so I don't know. Those are just sporadic thoughts uh, as you're speaking. Well, I, I mean, most of existence, at least the most of the existence of this universe, the vast majority, like 99.999% of it did not have human beings. And so who are we as humans to think that God can only exist, uh, you know, w- with the with the conceptions that we've made God to exist in, right? And so the, God has had a relationship with the universe for far longer than we've been around. And at some point, humans, the human species will no longer exist. How that will happen, who knows? But at some point that will be the case and there will be existence beyond that. And God will have a relationship with the world in that way too. And so we are just a blip in that way. And so, yeah, I, I think thinking about uh, God in that way, uh, you know, where we're not the only ones is really important. But also I do think because we are humans and we can't think about God as if we were a tree, we have no other choice but to think of God as a human. And so I think that's really important too, that it, it is absolutely okay to think about God in in the humanness that we do, but also recognize that God transcends that very much as well. Yeah, that's that's good because I think there is uh, there is a temptation uh, to recognize the anthropocentrism and then just like swing the pendulum to the other side and be like, fuck people, uh, which is inherently like antithesis to your uh, your paper, right. to your thesis, because it's about embodiment and like being human. And that's a, a good thing that should be celebrated. Um, all right. So if we're to kind of move out of the realm of uh like the science and the like philosophical bit and tap into some uh theology Mm -hmm. uh, because this is some kind of a you know i hope it's some kind of a theology podcast um but you kind of play with five different um like theological ideas or concepts that you apply um you know your your the, the embodiment stuff to uh, divinity, uh, evil, soteriology, eschatology, and the world. Um, probably don't have time to do all of them, but is there maybe like for starters, if you had to pick one of those, um, we will have time to do another one or two, but like, which one of those is most exciting to you? Um, like we say, okay, if we're going to take this seriously, here's how we can think about it theologically, which, which of your, what five were most exciting for you or that you care about the most? Uh, well, well, let's talk about God. We were just talking about God. Let's talk about yeah. God then. Do it. Uh, Drop so it yeah, I, start, I, I start out with divinity. And one thing I'll just preface with the these theological concepts is I have these five theological concepts. I did my best to talk about them in a way that would make sense for anybody who is religious. So regardless of the religious tradition, also recognizing that I'm still writing from a Christian perspective. And so, you know, I talk about divinity and God, but also there's a lot of religious uh, experience. There's a lot of religions out there that don't necessarily use that terminology, might understand it a little differently, but I tried my best. All right. So just preface it with that. With that said, I do think a lot of the articulation of God from process thought really aligns well with taking the body seriously. And if we, if we take 
our experiences of the body seriously, especially within religious experience, then I don't know if we really have any other choice but to think about God in this way where God is um, empathetic, is able to change. And so, yeah, my argument in that section is essentially, you know, we, we see that our bodies physically change when something happens to it. You know, let's say, for example, you know, I, I, I didn't really get into it too much, but um, uh, Resma McKinnon, who wrote uh, My Grandmother's Hands, does a lot of research around racial trauma and epigenetics and how our genes, how people's genes literally will change when they experience racial trauma. Okay. So if our bodies change in that way at like coreness to us, right? Like our genes, uh, then if that's true and we are images of the divine and that to know God is to know a human being in the person of Jesus who also probably had genes that changed when he experienced trauma, then if that's the case, then God is also this, this, uh, actual entity that will change as well. And so I think that's a really, really, uh, th there, there is this understanding of God in that way is very, very um, resonant with our bodies and under understanding our bodies in this way. And so I think process thought has this really great articulation that resonates so much with embodiment. And so I just don't understand how you would be able to really take seriously the body and also have an understanding of God that's wholly other and wholly unable to change. I, I just, I, it does not resonate at all with the understanding of embodiment. So mm. anyway, uh, I, I get really jazzed up when I get to talk about God. No, that's, I, well, out of all the things there are to get jazzed about talking about, I feel like God is a pretty cool one. Um, Cause I mean, I think like one thing that we say on the show all the time is that our, uh, concept of God is uh, deeply important because it's going to impact and influence the rest of stuff. So if you have a God that's a moral monster and that's an asshole and that only likes white Christian nationalists, then like, guess what? You're probably going to vote for certain people and be a white Christian nationalist. <laughs> like it makes sense. And so having a, I mean, the this understanding of God that you just articulated and one that is found within process thought is so deeply like beautiful to me. Um, and then hopefully that impacts how I live my life and behave as a person. Mm -hmm. um, but I love the, you know, the imagery you're talking about with, um, I mean, not that I love that people's bodies change because of trauma, but the idea, you know, when we think about, um, I don't know, within Christian language, we talk about the cross and the God that suffers with us. And so when we think about relationships, um, which again, this is all, inherent within process thought, but like relationships require the ability of giving and receiving. It's not just this one way street. So if God is a God that suffers and it is, you know, within our bodies, um, that things do physically change, then of course this experience is going to happen within the divine. And it just, it's just another way that, um, grounds the inherent worth of, I think not just people, but all life. Um, and I just, I don't know. I'm just, basically I'm saying it's like a beautiful articulation and I'm like, fuck. Yeah. I wish more people would talk this way. Um, <laughs> so well done. <laughs> like I, yeah. 
Yeah, I, this is part of the reason why I'm so interested in Christianity still. And, and this is not to say that other religions don't have a theology like this. But one of the reasons why I'm so interested in Christianity is that Christians make this claim that God became a human in the person of Jesus. So therefore, God knows what it's like to have a human body. Okay. And even go a little further, God knows what it's like to have a human body that's been abused and suffers. And there are a lot of bodies out there still to this day and in the past, a lot of human bodies that have suffered and have been abused and tortured. And I think there's something at least to be said that God knows what that was like. And it, that doesn't necessarily mean that the body's, your body is going to be fixed if it's been abused and tortured. But at the very least, God knows what that was like. And I think that alone could potentially heal. I don't want to say it will, but it could potentially be healing to know you are not the only one whose body has been tortured and suffers. God too knows what that's like. Boom. May it's not even Sunday and Mason's preaching. Well done. That's good. That's right. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> sit, sit down, trip. I'm not even a Baptist preacher's son, but I can still spit it out if I need to. <laughs> That's true. Drop it like it's hot. Damn. All right. So I have two uh two more things I want to talk about, but I think they actually come together nicely. Uh one of your theological ideas, and then I want to tie the ethics into it. Um, but I think this they they go together. You'll see it. Um, so you talk about soteriology. Um, like Great. I wanted to talk about that too. Yes. So let's do it. Drop your soteriological knowledge and musings yeah, to put trip to shame. That's right. <laughs> uh, That's right. Yeah. So I used a lot of Monica Coleman, who's a, a fellow process thinker, and she's a womanist theologian, just unbelievable. But she wrote a book a number of years ago called Making a Way Out of No Way. And it really, it's just this process womanist vision of salvation, of soteriology. And I just think the world of it. I, I just think it's so good. Uh, let me see where I can find, I'm, I'm looking through my paper right now, seeing where like exactly where I made that connection between our bodies and salvation. Um, basically what she makes this argument is that salvation is not like salvation from the world, right? For a lot of us who grew up in evangelicalism, we think salvation means that you are getting saved so you can go to heaven, so you can escape your physical body. You can be a soul and glory forever and ever and amen. That's it. But what Monica makes the argument is that salvation is actually salvation for the world, specifically for the healing and wholeness of our bodies. And so I think that's a really key way of reframing it, that salvation not from, but salvation for. And I really, really enjoy um, that way of thinking about salvation. And uh, obviously then you, you have a salvation for the world means that our bodies, God is longing and doing everything God can to heal our bodies for wholeness in our bodies. And that is salvation, not salvation from. Yeah, no, it's, it's so good because too, like this is, you know, the show used to be called theology doesn't suck, um, which a lot of theology does suck. So I had to change the name, um, but theology that sucks is a theology that does have this kind of, you know, to go back to what we talked about earlier, this is like a practical implication that mind body uh, dualism and the separation when we believe that salvation is not something uh, for real bodies and for creation here and now, but rather this thing that's later, then 
wow, Christians can do really weird stuff like, I don't know, the Crusades or be racist and enslave an entire people group all in the name of God. Because luckily one day, at least in heaven, things will be fine. So it's Mm -hmm. like when we have this other world that you're like out there separate understanding of what salvation means like that that always was confusing and like frustrated me because it was like then we can just treat people like shit now it doesn't matter um so i I love that bit uh where you bring in the importance of embodiment uh for our soteriology because then um and also too like to tie in some process stuff that that i really appreciate this idea within process that everything essentially exists as these like interconnected webs of relationship Mm -hmm. um i I think then we can recognize that like your salvation and my salvation are inherently intertwined and interconnected Mm -hmm. and so like you know liberation scholars like um monica coleman i know she's used to a womanist theologian but she would fit with like in the liberation movement as well right i i i mean yeah i would definitely put her in the liberationist movement absolutely yeah, and they like within liberation theology, there's this deep recognition that like salvation's not just this deeply like um individualistic thing, but rather it's mm-hmm. this collective communal thing. So your salvation is deeply interconnected and intertwined with mine. Yeah. Right. And then with this importance of embodiment, like you're talking about, it's like, yeah, and then also that includes like this physical body. Right. And yours. <laughs> and even, yeah, yeah, including the cells that make up our bodies. And I would even go as far to say all of matter is going to be saved, um, or at least God is longing for its salvation. And I, and I think that's a really key piece. And that really connects actually t- nicely to uh, my last section in that theology part of the paper where I actually talk about eschatology. And one of the things I just want to bring out in that section is uh, disability theologian Nancy Iceland proposes this really great idea of thinking about eschatology, not as, and, and I think there's this like way of thinking about eschatology from this liberationist lens that is like, all right, at some point, God is going to intervene and is going to make all things as it sh- as things should be. Basically, God's going to restore uh, the world as it should. And I think that's a great way of thinking about eschatology, but I I think a little bit more of a realistic, a better way of understanding it is um, Nancy Iceland says that for our bodies in particular, especially our bodies that are um, disabled, bodies that are broken, that that God isn't going to magically intervene and make things whole. That is not the eschaton that we should be waiting for. The eschaton that we should be waiting for is creating a world where bodies aren't disabled and broken. So we no longer are creating a society where we're actually disabling people because we can't figure out another way to live in the world. And we're living into a world where we don't oppress people anymore and their bodies. And that's the eschaton that we should be longing for, not a eschaton where we magically or we wait for a god to magically intervene and create things as it should but we actually are doing the fucking work to make a world that we want uh, a world that god wants and i think that's the kind of eschaton that the way we should think about eschatology uh, and i borrowed that from nancy iceland and i just really really appreciate that but i think it ties really well with what we were talking about with salvation no a hundred percent <laughs> drop it like it's hot that's sick man i love it the ah man yeah because i mean it just reminds me like personal anecdote i grew up with a friend christopher um who 
has been blind since birth and not just like has to wear really strong glasses, but like a high, like blind, blind, a hundred percent blind. Um, and grew up in Christianity with me. He still is very, you know, in a very different place theologically than I am much more conservative evangelical. However, something that he would always say when I was a little kid that I didn't understand was he would be like, you know, people would come up to him at church every freaking Sunday and be like, Oh, I'm praying that God is going to like make you be able to see again, which we find in the Bible. And it's like, people aren't being assholes, right there. That's this genuine thing. But Christopher was always like, no, I don't want that because this is, this is who I am. Like, this is me. And I would much rather like how you're saying, have a world where I'm not seen as somehow different or like defective or something like that because of who I find myself as an embodied person. And like, I had, I didn't understand that at all. I was like, Christopher, why don't you just want to see like, that sounds way better. (laughs) And uh, yeah. So I I don't know. I love that. Nancy Iceland. um, Yeah. Yeah. She wrote a book uh, a number of years ago called the disabled God. And it's just really, really good. Um, But that's kind of the, what she brings out in her part on the eschatology. And I basically just rip it off. I just think it's really, really good. Yeah. Let's, let's create a world where bodies aren't disabled and where bodies don't have to be abused. Let's create that world and let's long for that world. Yeah. It sounds like a good plan to me. The eschatological hope. And I think, man, I, so I guess uh, coming up on the hour here, eschatology is always a good place to kind of wrap up with. Right. Um, Yeah. But eschatology, for me, like I talked to uh, Aaron Simmons uh, recently, who I know you know, mm-hmm. um, and Aaron used this really interesting phrase, um, and like hopefully I'm not misquoting you, Aaron, if you happen to be listening to this, but he said something along the lines of like, um, talking about this like, essentially like this impossible eschatological hope, and like constantly working towards and striving for uh for that and he had some really nice like philosophical uh you know com- you know comments and such about that but this idea the the idea of like almost like the impossible kind of thing um really like stirred something up in me especially in like regards to process thought because if i deem something impossible then to go outside of the impossible is inherently creative um and so, like, there's that, you know, giving into the divine and, and creative lore. And so creating a more beautiful world where, uh, like you're saying, like, bodies aren't disabled um, or racism isn't a thing or, you know, people aren't being killed. People are not going hungry or, or whatever. Like, um, I don't know. I think that eschatological hope, which I think ties nicely and deeply into our soteriology, like you're saying, um, that's one thing that keeps me uh, as well within this kind of Christian tradition, because I find that Christian eschatolog- eschatological hope so deeply compelling and beautiful. And I'm like, I really fucking hope that's true. And I'm going to hopefully do my best to live a life um, in such a way that resembles this truth that, you know, I see as this future out there. Um, but, you know, to use like some NT right uh this like eschatological vision breaking you know into the here and now uh kind of deal so i i love it and the embodiment piece is just like cherry on on it well done dude yeah it reminds me of during the protests that emerged out of george floyd being killed i remember seeing 
some sort, I don't even know if it was in Minneapolis, but I saw some sort of graffiti that said something along the lines of the end of this world is possible. And I just am like, that is fucking good eschatology. Metal, you know, especially in the, yeah, yeah. you know, in the (laughs) the midst of uh, another black person being killed by the cops, like in the midst of that happening, like the end of that world of cops killing black people, that is possible. Like that is a real reality that could happen. We just have to make it happen. Yeah, and there it is. There's the the bring the process back into it to, to wrap it up. There's the the call of uh the divine, the lore, because we have a real role to play as co-creators in creating that kind of world where black people are no longer uh murdered by police, um, and where bodies are no longer disabled. Um it's not just gonna happen because we have nice thoughts and prayers, but rather right. uh we have a role to play. So mm-hmm. Oh yeah, man. Well, dude, this was uh, a ton of fun. I'm glad we finally got to uh, hang out and do a podcast together. I enjoyed it. Yeah, man. Yeah, it was fun. You're probably like, I don't know, the the 10th set of eyes that have read the paper. Maybe there's more than that. Maybe there's like 25 people now that have read it. Um, but, uh, you know, if people want to read it, let me know. I, I, I really enjoyed I mean, I really do kind of think of this as my baby right now. Uh, <laughs> or I'm just like, hey, you want to see my baby called my thesis? <laughs> uh it's really just really cool to see what other people might be thinking about it i I just really enjoyed making it uh it was a lot of work i mean writing a thesis is not easy i mean it's like almost 70 pages and uh i i don't know how like i like interview authors all the time and they're writing like 200 page or more books and i'm like i don't know how that's possible because 70 pages was already hard enough but uh nonetheless i really enjoyed writing it and uh i'm so so proud of it yeah, well, you did a, a great job, man. I enjoyed reading and engaging it. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm jealous. I have aspirations to write stuff, and like the best I've ever done is like 15 pages, and that's like takes all of me <laughs> to do it. And then I'm like, eh, I don't know what I think about this. So, so well done. Um, and yeah, I guess like, where can people like, where would you like me to direct people? to harass you or i mean connect with you you know it's not like i have my shortage of harassers uh (laughs) yeah i've got a website yeah god they're they're all everywhere uh yeah you can find me at masonmeninga.com from there you can connect to me on social media i'm pretty active on all of the social media uh although i do try to keep facebook fairly like personal like just personal friends and stuff but uh yeah twitter instagram got my youtube channel check it out i really like making those videos and every time i make one i'm like this is the best one i've made so far and so yeah i really i really like i really do think they're good videos like if if i were in the space where i'm like still trying to learn about theology a lot you know if i was like when i was 19 these would have been the videos i would have like ate up so uh i really I really am proud of them, and hopefully, if you're in a space like that, they're they're uh, they're helpful and entertaining and engaging. So, yeah, that's uh, where you can find me. Yeah, sweet. Well, I'll be I'll be sure to link all of those things uh, in the show notes, um, including your YouTube page. Because I I don't know, I find the, the YouTube videos uh, deeply entertaining and valuable as well. <laughs> it's good. I know I always learn something. I always get like a, a good laugh out of them. And I think if you can accomplish good. both of those things, then like we're, that's, you know, that's the whole point. If people can come away with both of those things, then that's what's supposed to happen. 
<laughs> good deal. All right, Mason. Well, thanks again so much for hanging out. Uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. And tell Siri I said what's up. Will do. Will do. All right, man and listeners, as always, uh, go in peace, guys. Thanks for hanging out today. Oh, 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 oh,